text is verses 11 and 12. We read the first 25 verses of the chapter. This is God's word of judgment on the nation of Moab. In these last chapters, God takes a chapter. Of course, the chapters are what, what we, how we've divided, but God goes from nation to nation speaking his judgment upon them. And this is God's word upon Moab. Jeremiah 48. Against Moab, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Woe unto Nebo, for it is spoiled. Kiriathaim is confounded and taken. Mizgad is confounded and dismayed. There shall be no more praise of Moab. In Heshbon, they have devised evil against it. Come, and let us cut it off from being a nation. Also thou shalt be cut down, O madmen. The sword shall pursue thee. A voice of crying shall be from Horonaim, spoiling and great destruction. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have caused a cry to be heard. For in the going up of Luhith, continual weeping shall go up. For in the going down of Horonaim, the enemies have heard a cry of destruction. Flee, save your lives, and be like the heath in the wilderness. For because thou hast trusted in thy works and in thy treasures, thou shalt also be taken. And Chemosh shall go forth into captivity with his priests and his princes together. And the spoiler shall come upon every city, and no city shall escape. The valley also shall perish, and the plain shall be destroyed, as the Lord hath spoken. Give wings unto Moab, that it may flee and get away. For the cities thereof shall be desolate, without any to dwell therein. Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. Moab hath been at ease from his youth. And he hath settled on his leaves, and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Neither hath he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remained in him, and his scent is not changed. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send unto him wanderers that shall cause him to wander. Or, or even perhaps better, I will send unto him tippers of vessels that shall cause him to be tipped over, that's the idea, and shall empty his vessels and break their bottles. And Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. How say ye, we are mighty and strong men for the war? Moab is spoiled and gone up out of her cities, and his chosen young men are gone down to the slaughter, saith the king whose name is the Lord of hosts. The calamity of Moab is near to come, and his affliction hasteth fast. All ye that are about him, bemoan him. And all ye that know his name, say, How is the strong staff broken, and the beautiful rod? Thou daughter that dost inhabit Dibon, come down from thy glory, and sit in thirst. 
For the spoiler of Moab shall come upon thee, and he shall destroy thy strongholds. O inhabitant of error, stand by the way and espy. Ask him that fleeth, and her that escapeth, and say, What is done? Moab is confounded, for it is broken down. Howl and cry, tell ye it in Arnon, that Moab is spoiled, and judgment is come upon the plain country, upon Holon, and upon Jehaza, and upon Mephaath, and upon Dibon, and upon Nebo, and upon Bethdiblaim, Bethdiblaim, and upon Kiriathaim, and upon Beth Gamel, and upon Beth Meon, and upon Kirioth, and upon Basra, and upon all the cities of the land of Moab, far or near. The horn of Moab is cut off, and his arm is broken, saith the Lord. So far we read of God's judgment upon Moab. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. The text is verses 11 and 12. Moab hath been at ease from his youth, and he hath settled on his lees, and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel, neither hath he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remained in him, and his scent is not changed. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send unto him wanderers that shall cause him to wander, and shall empty his vessels and break their bottles. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, how are we to view our afflictions? How are we to view the trials and sorrows that God sends to us? What is our attitude supposed to be? The temptation, of course, is to become bitter. The temptation is to murmur and to complain. But what does God's word say? In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we read these striking words. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into different trials and afflictions, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting, lacking nothing. James says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials. Why? Well, because God has a good purpose with your trials. God is shaping you and He is maturing you, working within you patience and the fruits of the Spirit. God is refining you so that you might come forth as pure gold. This kind of language and this idea we know is found throughout the Scriptures. In Psalm 119, the psalmist confesses, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. In Hebrews 12, verses 10 and 11, we read, For they, our earthly parents, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he, God, chastened us 
for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Although afflictions do not seem to be joyous in the moment, what we need to realize is that God has a good purpose with our afflictions. God has a loving purpose with every affliction that he sends our way. And as God's people, we need to realize that. We need to submit to that. Trust in the Lord's wisdom and the Lord's care. Because if there is one thing that is true, it is this. The Lord is faithful, always faithful to his people. Now in the Bible, God uses a few very beautiful pictures to help us understand how he accomplishes good through our afflictions. One picture we already sang of and I already made reference to, one picture is the picture of a refining fire. Just as a refiner puts gold into a fiery hot furnace to purify that gold, so God sometimes puts his people in the the hot fires of affliction in order to purify his people of sin. Another picture in the Bible is the picture of pruning. Just as a gardener will prune his fruit tree so that it brings more fruit, just so God will prune his people and lop off a branch here and lop off a branch there so that his people bring forth more fruit. On the Bible, there is another picture that God uses. A beautiful picture with which we perhaps are not so familiar. But it is a picture that helps us to understand the kind of attitude that we need to have towards afflictions. It's this picture, this this figure that we're going to look at in the preaching this afternoon. And it's the striking picture of wine making. And our purpose in studying this picture is that we might learn more and more to have a right attitude towards the afflictions that God puts in our lives. That's, that's really what the focus of the sermon this afternoon is going to be. That we might glorify God as we have a right attitude towards what he does with us and in our lives. We take as our theme, being emptied from vessel to vessel. We look at three things. First, we look at the neglect Moab experienced. Second, we look at the care God's people experience. And then third, we look at the purpose of God in it all. In order to understand the text, we should have a little bit of an idea of the context. For many chapters in the book of Jeremiah, God is bringing judgments. He's speaking judgments upon his people, upon Judah. God's people have been walking in gross sin, and God tells his people that they will be brought into Babylonian captivity. In the last chapters of this prophecy, God turns his attention from Judah to the nations that surround Judah, and he also speaks a word of judgment upon these surrounding nations. And here in Jeremiah 48, God brings a word of judgment upon Moab. Moab was one of the greatest enemies of Israel. Originally, if you remember, Moab was conceived through incest. Remember at the time when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's two daughters made him drunk and they each had a child by him. One daughter had a child 
who was named Ammon, and the other daughter had a son who was named Moab. And that's where Moab comes from. So Moab is even distantly related to Israel through Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham. Moab was also Israel's next-door neighbor. Moab lived on the east side of the Jordan River, right beside the Dead Sea, right under the tribe of Reuben. And throughout her, his history, Moab was the sworn enemy of Israel. During the days of the wilderness wanderings, remember Balak, king of Moab, hired Balaam, the false prophet Balaam, to speak curses upon God's people? And then remember in the days of the judges, it was King Eglon, whom Ehud slew. It was King Eglon, king of Moab, who oppressed Israel for 18 long years. There was always animosity between God's people and Moab. But now one thing that we should know about the country of Moab is this. Moab was a country that throughout her existence, throughout her history, had enjoyed relative peace and prosperity. She had not been touched by affliction. Whereas God's people always seemed to be consumed by one affliction after another, Moab, her next-door neighbor, always seemed to enjoy peace in his own lands. As the text says at the beginning of verse 11, Moab hath been at ease from his youth. Moab was a prosperous, fortified, and wealthy country, Nothing bad ever seemed to happen to Moab. No afflictions, no trials, no sorrows. And as a result, Moab had become a very proud and arrogant nation. And now this is where the passage uses the figure of winemaking. In verse 11 we read, Moab hath been at ease from his youth, and now this, and he hath settled on his lees and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel. In order to understand this language, we need to understand how wine was made back in the day of Jeremiah. In the days of Jeremiah, many people had vineyards, and everyone knew how to make wine. Of course, first, the grapes would have to be gathered together, and they would be thrown into a very big container, and they would be pressed down. The grapes would be crushed and made into juice in this wine press. Then this juice would run off and it would be collected into vats or big jars. Then almost immediately, as a natural process, that wine juice would begin the process of fermentation. Fermentation is how you get from wine juice, or from wine juice, from grape juice to grape wine. Fermentation is how you get juice to turn into wine. Fermentation is the process by which the natural sugars of the grape juice are converted into alcohol and carbon monoxide, yeast in the grape juice. Little microorganisms digest the sugar in the juices and it produces alcohol and carbon dioxide as a byproduct. And that's how fermentation works. That's how you get grape juice to turn into wine. Within the first week, you have the most fermentation taking place. You have the most sugar in the juice, and the yeast takes that sugar and converts it into alcohol and carbon dioxide. Then after the first week, that wine is transferred to another jar 
or it's put into very strong wineskins, and the process of fermentation continues. And, and this is also why Jesus says you don't put new wine into old wineskins, because as the new wine continues to ferment, not only is it producing alcohol, but carbon dioxide. And if you put new wine in old wineskins, well, the gas in that old wineskin builds up, and it becomes so strong that the old wineskin will burst. So you put new wine into new wineskins so that it can handle that process of fermentation. Well, this is how wine is made. But now as that wine is undergoing the process of fermentation, there's a waste byproduct that is produced. And this waste byproduct is made up of the dead yeast cells and the yeast waste products. And this waste material is referred to as the lees, the word used in the text, or dregs, which is the word we used in our singing, or sediment, that's what it is. This byproduct is the sludge, you might say, that the waste material that would gather together at the bottom of the wine vat or that would stick to the sides of the jar. This sediment is bitter. And if left in the wine, these lees or these dregs would give the wine a very bitter taste. So the lees needs to be strained out of the wine. And the way that this is done is by carefully pouring the wine from one vessel into another vessel, very slowly and very carefully, so as to leave behind that gunk, that sediment, the lees. That's how you purify the wine. However, at the same time, what we need to recognize is that the lees also adds flavor to the wine. I think in Isaiah 26, a, a feast of wine on the lees. The lees does add flavor to the wine. It would make the wine more full-bodied. It makes the flavor stronger. And so, the situation is that there's really an art form to making wine. The winemaker needs to know exactly when to pour the wine from one vessel into another vessel in order to make good wine. If you transfer the wine from one vessel to another vessel too early, you get very weak wine, watered-down wine. However, if you leave the wine in the vessel too long the wine will begin to settle on the lees. And the result is that the wine becomes bitter, it begins to thicken, and it becomes ruined. It becomes undrinkable. And not only is it undrinkable, but it, it even starts to stink. The point is that if a winemaker is going to make good wine, he really has to pay attention to his wine. He's going to have to transfer his wine from one vessel to another vessel, and he's going to have to do that multiple times over the course of the fermentation process. And if he faithfully handles the wine, and he's diligent to pour out the wine from one vessel to another vessel multiple times, well then the wine is going to be very clean, without a bitter or sour taste. Now why go into this whole description of how to make wine? Well, exactly because in the text, Jeremiah says that Moab hath settled on his lees. Notice verse 11. Moab hath been at ease from his youth, and hath settled on his lees, and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel. And notice the end of the verse. Therefore his taste remained in him, and his scent is not changed. The idea is really this. His taste has become insipid, bitter, distasteful, and his scent is not changed. His scent is not improved. It lacks freshness. 
And the point Jeremiah is making is this. Moab is like a big jar of grape juice, a vat of grape juice that has been completely neglected by the winemaker. The winemaker has not poured Moab from vessel to vessel. The winemaker has just allowed Moab to sit there and sit there for weeks upon weeks and years and years without any disruption, without any trial, without any conflict or affliction. And the result is that Moab is like wine that has not undergone the process of purification. So that instead of becoming a good, wine, a good jar of wine, a good vessel of wine, Moab has become ruined. Moab has a bitter taste to her. Moab is like foul, sludge-filled, thickened wine. And the point here is spiritual. Notice the language. He hath settled on his lees. Now, that language refers to sin. The idea here is a reference to sin. That lees, those bitter dregs, that sediment that, that forms in the wine during fermentation, that's a picture of sin. To be settled on your lees means to become comfortable with your sins so your sins may continue to exist in your life. This is exactly the language used elsewhere in Scripture. In Zephaniah 1, chapter 12. In Zephaniah 1, verse 12, we read, And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their leaves, that say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. According to the Bible, if you are settled on your leaves, that means that you have fallen into self-complacency. means you've fallen into an attitude of being pleased with yourself. You're not bothered with your sins. You're not fighting against your sins. You're not cleansing yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. In a word, you've become spiritually indifferent and nonchalant and self-satisfied. And what happens? The same thing that happens to the wine when it's allowed to settle on the leaves. Spiritually, you begin to stink Spiritually, your life becomes characterized by all kinds of besetting sins. Spiritually, you become apathetic. And the result is that your life begins to give off a bitter taste and a foul smell in God's nostrils. You begin to leave a rancid taste in his mouth. That is what has happened to Moab. And why did that happen to Moab? Well, because she was not, or he, because he was not emptied from vessel to vessel. And spiritually, what does that refer to? Well, that refers to the spiritual trials and the difficulties and afflictions that we experience in life. The spiritual trials that purify us and refine us. Notice how verse 11 puts it. Moab hath been at ease from his youth, and he hath settled on his lees, and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel Neither hath he gone into captivity. We'll have to say more about that in a few moments. But the point right now is this. Moab has not experienced any afflictions. Moab has not experienced any trials or tribulations in his life. We might think, how nice that would be. How nice if I could go through life without any tribulations. How nice to go through life without being poured from vessel to vessel without any interruption in my life, without any straining process or any purification process taking place. But what happens? What happens is this. You soon become like sour wine. How true this is, congregation. When you don't have troubles in your life, what so often happens? 
we all know from personal experience, I do too, I don't feel my need to call upon the Lord in prayer as I otherwise would feel my need. When all you enjoy in life is prosperity upon prosperity, what happens? If you're not careful, what happens is that you soon become proud, puffed up, self-reliant. You begin to grow distant from the Lord. This is exactly what David confesses in Psalm 30. In Psalm 30, David says, When I was in prosperity, I said, I shall never be moved. And if David had been left in that vessel of prosperity, those bitter dregs of self-boasting and pride would have made David a very self-complacent and ungodly man. And so what did God do for his child? We read God hid his face from David. He hid his face from David so that David might be humbled and learn to trust in God alone. This is the story of so many people. Think of what happened to Gideon in his prosperity. He fell into idolatry. Think of what happened to David again when things were going so well for him that he thought that while his army was at war, he could take a nap on his rooftop. What happened? He ended up committing murder and committing adultery. Think of what happened to Solomon with all his wealth and prosperity bowing down to the idols that his heathen wives worshipped. Think of those who are never humbled. Think of people today who give themselves wholly over to their work and and they enjoy much prosperity. They don't keep the Sabbath day holy. They're always pushing themselves to be first. They're always putting others down. And they seem to be the ones always getting ahead in life. They make their work their idol and they even seem to be rewarded for doing so. Think of people who spend their money on the entertainment of the world. Think of people who seem to be able to watch TV every single night. And they don't have any church responsibilities or any family responsibilities. And they indulge themselves in the entertainment of the world. And they sin and they sin and they sin still more. And and they make a mockery of sin. They play with burning coals of lust. They carry fire in their bosom. And they boast that they never get burned. They go from iniquity to iniquity as a vulture goes from carcass to carcass. And they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And they say, even if God does know, what do we care? Who is Jehovah that we should obey Him? Who is the Almighty that I should tremble at His word? And they keep worshiping their idol god, Chemosh. They keep offering their children to the fire, just as the Moabites did. And they become settled on their lease. And the child of God looks at such people and is tempted to say, They are not in trouble as other men are. Neither are they plagued like other men. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They build barns. And then they decide to tear down those barns in order to build bigger barns. That's how prosperous they are. And sometimes the child of God is even tempted to say to himself, I have cleaned my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. And in the text this afternoon, how does God put it? God says, but they are being neglected. To use a figure from winemaking, they are not being emptied from vessel to vessel. The winemaker has no care for them. 
Don't be jealous of Moab. Moab is being neglected. Moab is secure in his sin. The result is also that Moab has now become a bitter taste in the mouth of the Lord. Moab has a bitter taste in the mouth of the Lord. Moab stinks like rotting sludge. And Moab is being prepared for utter destruction. That was the neglect Moab experienced. That's the first point of the sermon. That's the neglect Moab experienced. But now moving on, we need to ask the question, what's the point of saying all of this? What's the point? Well, what we need to remember is that Jeremiah and God here is speaking to God's people. Moab is not reading these words. These words are for the church. The church is the one reading these words. God's people. And these words are given to God's people in order to comfort them and encourage them and warn them and give them instruction. And the instruction Jeremiah and and that God is giving his people is this. Look, you are going into Babylonian captivity. God has told you very clearly, you are going into captivity. But now, you need to look at that captivity with the right perspective. Why is God bringing you into captivity? Why does God cause you to go through such difficult trials? You're completely uprooted, taken into a strange land where they worship idols, and the temple is going to be destroyed. Why all your afflictions, child of God? Answer, because God refuses to neglect you. God refuses to let you go to pot. God refuses to have you go to waste. The point is, God's activity of bringing you into Babylonian captivity, yes, for the ungodly reprobate in Judah, it is punishment. But for God's people, God is doing it for your good. You see, God is the winemaker and you are the wine. And just as wine must not be allowed to settle on the lees, and just as wine needs to be emptied from vessel to vessel in order to come to proper maturity and purity, just so for this same purpose, God is leading you into captivity. Now that idea comes out even in the text itself. Notice the very middle of verse 11. He hath settled on his lees and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel. And now this. Neither hath he gone into captivity. The contrast is obvious for God's people reading this. Judah is going into captivity. In fact, Judah has already begun to go into captivity. And Judah has not been allowed to settle on her lees. But this is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. The purpose of your captivity is so that your taste might change. Your taste might improve. The purpose of your captivity is so that your smell might be sweetened and refreshed. So that your smell might be pleasing to the master winemaker. When God brings you into Babylonian captivity, what God is doing is this. He is pouring you from one bottle into another bottle. He is refining you. He is purifying you. He's taking away the sediment. He is purifying you from the bitterness of your own sins. He is sanctifying you, making you holy. 
God empties you from vessel to vessel. He causes you to go from affliction to affliction so that the bitter taste of sin might not remain in you and take over you and ruin you, but that instead you might be changed into the sweetness of holiness. So that's very striking. Even in this chapter of judgment upon Moab, there's a comforting word for God's people who are reading all of this. A comforting word for them as they look at their own sufferings. I see now. God is caring for me. God is doing a good work in me. He is not abandoning me. Rather, He's doing the opposite. He is refining and shaping me. Congregation, what a word of instruction and comfort this is for us as well. We need to be reminded of these truths too. In fact, more than we sometimes realize. Because what is our natural reaction to affliction? Our natural reaction is this. I don't want it. I don't want to be poured out. I don't want to be poured out from vessel to vessel. This is an unsettling experience. I don't want to go into Babylonian captivity. Who does? I don't want to be emptied of my health. I don't want sickness. I don't want to be emptied of my income. I don't want financial struggles. I don't want to be emptied of my ease. I don't want this extra burden. I don't want this accident. I don't want to have to deal with this problem in my family, my extended family. I don't want controversy in the churches. I don't want to lose my job right now. I don't want to have to help this friend with this sin problem in his or her life right now. I want to be like Moab. Lord, if you love me, then why don't you treat me like you treat Moab? But the reality is, At times, in God's infinite wisdom and love, he determines that this is exactly what we need right now. And we do need it. There is so much of us that is yet of the world. It's exposed to us when we go through these trials. There is so much in our homes that is of the world. There is so much of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Perhaps especially that last one, the pride of life. We are so proud. We still think that we have something good in ourselves by nature. We still think sometimes that we have something that we can chalk up to our own selves. And even sometimes when we are humbled, we're not truly humbled, it's just that our pride has been wounded. And then God says to us, it's time for you to be emptied from vessel to vessel. It's time for you now to go through another round of purification. You're getting too comfortable. Your prayers are becoming too routine. It's time to quicken up your prayer lives. Your life is getting too comfortable. It's time to go on with the work of refining you. And so he takes us and he pours us from vessel to vessel. And we experience that affliction that, that overturning of our life. Maybe even affliction upon affliction. And for God's children, it's a blessing. Oh, to be sure, as the scriptures say, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. But nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them that are exercised thereby. It's a blessing because through it we're brought closer to the Lord. And we come to learn once again that our joy and our only comfort and our trust is in the Lord. 
and on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. You know, we just have to look back at our own lives and ask the question. I can look back on my own life and ask the question, what if the Lord had never given me that affliction? Right? What if the Lord had never caused me to experience that trial, that season in life? What would have happened to me? Where would I be today if it wasn't for the Lord shaping me and maturing me, guiding me, strengthening me, as he led me through the various trials and growth spurts of my spiritual life? You see, God is the master winemaker. God knows how to make good wine. Incarnation, individual child of God, you know what you are. You are the vintage of the Lord. You are the many berries of the Lord being pressed together, from whom one wine will flow. You are the chosen vessels of the Lord. You need refinement. The worst thing that could happen to us is not affliction. The worst thing in life is not affliction. The worst thing in life is being left to yourselves that you're allowed to settle on your leaves. And God, our Heavenly Father, will not allow that to happen. What we need to remember as well in all of this is that God is not punishing us. Oh no. In the midst of our sufferings and afflictions, how important it is to remember who we are in Jesus Christ. That's first of all. That's the, the fundamental thing. Don't forget the cross. Remember the cross first in your sufferings. The cross of Jesus Christ explains everything. God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I belong to Jesus Christ and God is my heavenly father who has fully taken care of all my sins through the suffering and atoning death of his son, Jesus Christ. And if God spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for me, how shall he not also with him freely give me all things? No man can condemn me. It's God who justifies me. And what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? We sang it in the first Psalter number. Really. It was implied in a certain way. Jesus drank that cup of God's wrath. We were the wicked. And there was that cup of judgment reserved for us. And Jesus took that cup and drank that cup for us. He drank that cup of God's wrath right down to its bitter dregs, the bitter sediment at the bottom of the cup. He drank that cup fully and completely, exactly so that for you and me, there might only be the sweet cup of blessing. God is not punishing me for my sin. Jesus has already borne all the punishment in this affliction, I am not paying for sins that I have committed. My suffering is not payment for sin. It couldn't be payment for sin anyways. Because my suffering doesn't make up, it doesn't atone for any sin that I committed. But it isn't payment for sin either. Because Jesus already bore the full punishment and has made the full payment. God is only purifying me. He is preparing me for glory. He is conforming me more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, to be sure, in the context of all of this, this is not to minimize the sins of wicked men as if we now treat the sins that others commit against us lightly. People do wicked and harmful things to us. But remember what the confession says. 
even when devils and wicked men act unjustly, and they will be treated accordingly for their deeds. Nevertheless, God, my God, orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner. And I see how true that is when I look at the entire life and the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Perfect. A perfect life for my salvation. What Jesus lived and what he suffered and all he went through, God ordered that for me. And I can also see how true this is when I look at my own life through the eyes of faith. And I see God has a good purpose in everything he does in my life. God's work of pouring me out from vessel to vessel is a work of love, a work of care, a work of grace. That's the care that God shows his people. And what's the purpose of God in all of it? What's the purpose of God? Well, we already said it. God is making wine. And we are his craftsmanship. We, we read that this morning. We are his workmanship. The purpose of it all is so that we might be pleasant to his taste. The purpose is so that we might give off a sweet-smelling aroma to his nostrils. The purpose is that you and, my might, you and I might be fit bottles of wine for the master's table. The purpose, in short, is that we might be to the glory of his name. This is clearly seen in verse 12. What is the end of Moab? Verse 12 says, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send unto him wanderers that shall cause him to wander and shall empty his vessels and break their bottles. As I already pointed out, it's, it's very interesting. The language there could perhaps better be translated, I will send unto him tippers of vessels to tip Moab over so that she is like wine that is being poured down the drain. You see, Moab is a vessel of wine that has gone bad. It's not fit for drinking. It needs to be poured down the, down the, down the drain. Moab will be utterly destroyed. And Moab here is a picture of the reprobate sinner whose end is destruction. But that's Moab. How about God's people? God's people who go into Babylonian captivity, who endure so much suffering and affliction as they are poured from one vessel to another, they will be preserved because they will be brought back into the land of Canaan. Ultimately, God's people will be brought to heavenly glory. And ultimately, that's our end too, congregation. We will be brought to glory. Not because we've made ourselves to differ, but because God, in unspeakable grace, has appointed us to salvation. We are vessels of mercy. That's the purpose of God in it all. So let's end with the question that we started with at the beginning of the sermon. How are we to view our afflictions? What is our attitude towards afflictions supposed to be as the elect, redeemed, regenerated children of God? Well, the answer of the text is this. Remember that you are the vintage of the Lord and the Lord is making wine and his purposes with you are good. They are always good. To use the words of Psalm 119, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right and that thou in faithfulness hath afflicted me. 
or to use the words of Psalm 73. This is how Asaph ends Psalm 73. We already sang it. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord my God, that I may declare all thy works. Or to use the words of James 1 verse 2, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. God is not leaving you to yourself. God is not neglecting you. He is he's emptying you from vessel to vessel. And in the end, that is a good thing indeed. Congregation, may God give us the grace to receive these truths, to trust his love and his handling with us, and to give him the glory through all of it. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, Thou art right in all Thy ways and holy in all Thy works. We thank Thee for another comforting word. Apply it to our hearts, Lord. May our minds and may our thoughts be shaped by it. May we carry it with us in the midst of the afflictions and sorrows that Thou dost bring before us, that we might bear patiently and even count it all joy when we fall into diverse trials that we might learn patience and might also see thy glory and see thy faithfulness in clearer display. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.